Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome to Season 2 of my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders around the US to discover their secrets behind the scene, share with you new exciting locations, and to find out what new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. If you are new to the show, welcome. Last week was a special episode as being the last one of the season one. I was on the hot seats and my friend Kate was interviewing me. Be sure to subscribe to the show because there is more great episodes coming soon. You do not want to miss out. Go to flavorsunknown.com, click on the subscribe page. Today for the first episode of season two, we have a special treat. I went back to Austin, Texas and talked to my friend, Andre Natera. If you remember the culinary Yoda from episode 19, he is the executive chef at the Hotel Fairmont. And together, we came up with this great idea of having a casual conversation around the table with two other chefs from, you know, from Austin. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome the three chefs from Austin to the show. We have Chef Kevin Fink from Emmerin Rye and soon opening a new restaurant, Hestia, before the end of 2019. Chef Fiori Tedesco from Locadoro. He was already a past guest on the show on episode number five. And obviously, the executive chef Andre Natera from the Fairmont Hotel. This recording session will be aired in two different parts because it was a very long recording. So the second part will come out on Tuesday, October 15th. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. This is a very interesting um, episode. It's very different from um, what we have done before. We are here at the Fairmont in uh, Austin. And I have with me around the table three chefs uh, from Austin. So Chef Kevin Fink, and then we have Chef uh, Fiori Tedesco. And Chef Andre Natera. So thank you very much, the three of you, for uh, joining me here around the table, because there's going to be an interesting uh, tasting and discussion around the table today. Thank you very much, uh, Chef Andre, to, for hosting you know, the podcast and uh, the chef for bringing um, dishes that we are going to um, you know, see and, uh, and taste in a few minutes. We are here in, in uh, Austin, and uh, the three of you obviously live and work here. So, so do you know each other, and have you, you know, collaborated before? Hey, Emmanuel. Thanks for having us on. Good to be in the room with you guys. I've known Kevin since right after he moved here. Kevin moved here about five years ago from Arizona, and we became fast friends. I was working at Bufalina at the time. I don't remember if I was in the kitchen there or on the floor. On the floor. Yeah. And we struck up a pretty tight rapport pretty fast. And almost five years later, and we see each other about once a month that we get to sit down, hang out, smoke a cigar, talk. That is one of the most regular 
social encounters I get to have in this world. So I get to count Kevin as a, a very close and trusted friend. Andre, I just met today, but I can tell by by looking at him and by his Yankees hat that we're going to be good friends. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, Andre, by the way, if you don't know the voice. As Fiori mentioned, first time meeting. It's good to meet another chef in the community. Kevin and I, I think, also met about five years ago or so at a Bocustior event. We were doing a fundraiser event for uh, Mentor BKB, and uh, I had eaten at Kevin's restaurant, and I, I was very impressed. And I've probably eaten there I've probably eaten at Kevin's restaurant more than any other restaurant in Austin, to be honest with you. I'm a big fan of his food. So I I reached out to him and said, hey, do you want to be a part of this event? And he's like, absolutely, I'm down. And uh, we ended up having a a, a relationship ever since. So we're basically neighbors. We see each other often, whether it's at events or or here or I'm there or or however the case may be. But it's been a good friendship so far. and, And we have a lot of mutual friends as well. Plus, this is a great opportunity to bring Austin chefs together and collaborate and and talk food. Wow, what do I say after that, huh? We haven't collaborated. This is interesting. We talked about this before the podcast directly in a way where we've cooked maybe together between Fiore and me. Andre and, and we, we've done a couple of dinners together, which has been really nice. And it's interesting at different parts of my being a chef in Austin where I met Fiore when I was a line cook and, and an Uber and Lyft driver because we were trying to save money to open the restaurant. And I can remember talking to him and where we really connected was I was super excited about this grain mill that I was getting in and our extruder. And I remember talking to Fiore about the process of what it took for us to select this extruder and about how much it was and how we were going to, in some ways, monetize that in the restaurant. You know, I got to cook with Andre for the first time, which was a really interesting event for me because we just opened, I think we had just started to get some acclaim, but, you know, our restaurant didn't open to a lot of fanfare. It opened and it was quite quaint and soft and and people really engaged with it, but it was not a thing where the doors came right off. And so, you know, maybe four months in or five months in, we had started to get some local acclaim and, and, and some national acclaim. And so the, the Bocuse dinner was the first time where I was able to start to give back to our community that had been really supportive to me, but also, you know, embrace it. And I think that's a really important part to get the best out of our community is, is to make sure that those that are at different levels of it are continuing to steward people you know, that are still striving to get there. And then also the, you know, to make sure that they're connecting with people in a, in a level that they want to continue to go to. And I can see um, you know, there's wine on the glass, in the glass here. So what, what do we have, uh, Chef? Do you know? Oh, yeah. I want to hear you talking French, Kevin. I, go for I'm it. for sure not going to try. My uh, chef de cuisine speaks very well French. He worked in Paris at Frenchie for a while. And so I realized just how terrible anything I say in French is because <laughs> next to him. But uh, there are two Croze Hermitage wines, uh, Chapoutier, the Croze Hermitage Blanc et Rouge. Okay, very good. So let's cheer here. Thank you again you know, for coming. <laughs> okay, cheers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we have the food coming here, and if chef, you want to, uh, you know, to want to talk about it and to introduce it. So, in honor of the host, we have a, a French lunch today. Which we don't have a French restaurant here, but we get it. We all worked in uh, in, in French restaurants at some point in our careers, or uh, went through culinary schools, or worked under a French chef at some point. So today, what we have, we have a, a, a shellfish plateau with some, uh, some oysters, some, some shrimp, some lobster, a little uh, tuna tartare, cocktail sauce. We have some toasty artichokes with a labna underneath and uh, some 
smoked trout roe. We just have a simple salad with the fiends herb and uh, a really acidic uh, banyols vinaigrette. We have some uh, palm puree. We have some uh, fresh baked sourdough with, uh, experimented with it today, but uh, we made a kombu butter. I hope it's good. We'll try it for the first time right now. We have a uh, green circle chicken that we, uh, we have underneath the skin. We stuffed it with a, uh, a farce made from the thighs and then uh, just the chicken jus. More if we, if we need. And then we have a Nyman Ranch porterhouse uh, yeah. with some whipped tallow. And then tart to 10 and palm puree. I think that's it. And we have as well, you know, another dessert from, uh, from Fiori, correct? You want to bring it? Yeah, (laughs) Fiori, come on. It's over there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. uh, Thank you so much, Andre, for, for doing all of this with your team. It's, uh, it's really fantastic. I have a question for you guys, because when you think about chef and you think about culinary education, even here in the States, we always refer to French techniques. Why? Why is that so? You know, French techniques so important, you know, in, in the culinary world. This is Andre. I think that for many years, especially here in the United States, it was always looked upon as French technique. And if you went to culinary school, whether it was the CIA or, or whatever was Le Cordon Bleu or Johnson & Wales, you were usually taught by French chefs early in the day. That was kind of the mantra when we were coming out of culinary school. All the chefs were French. If they worked in hotels or they were Austrian or they were German or something like that. And then I would say probably in the last 15, 20 years, you, you started to see you know the emergence of the American chef kind of taking over, but still rooted in the fundamentals of French cooking. So it's always going to be important based on the techniques that we learned, based on the flavors that we grew up with, based on the influences that we have. And quite honestly, it's when I sometimes look at just, you know, what is American cuisine? It, it almost feels like, oh, American cuisine is kind of French cuisine, but done by Americans almost with slight changes. Yeah. I mean, we all grew up with some, when you, when you talk about what is like formal training for a chef in the United States or really anywhere in the world. That generally refers to French technique and generally like the French brigade is something that organization, collection of techniques, style of running a kitchen is we all have to know, right? We all, it might be, it might be something that we fully embrace and we run our kitchens like that. Most American kitchens are still run in this like French brigade model. We've tweaked that. Uh, we've gone, I, my kitchen is a little f- far away from that system. I know Kevin's is as well, but. I would imagine you have your own imprint on on the organization. But it's really about when you talk about French technique in a French kitchen, my mind first goes to like a disciplined, orderly space where cleanliness and order are king and there is universal respect for that amongst chefs. And so that like the cuisine that ties together those those principles, like is amongst chefs always revered. I cooked in Italy at a really young time in my life and also my career. And I recognize that what we know in the States as Italian food is a very much an oversimplification of something, almost to a degrading way. And, and American Italian food is totally different than food that is origin of Florence or Tuscany or the south of Italy or the north of Italy or the coasts. And I think to me, French food is also that oversimplification of things that is different in a region. And what it is, is more about ideals and this mantra that we have looked back for some of the great gastronomes of you know, history. And they came out of France. But what France is today, what France was 500 years ago, are totally different. 
the idea of the hierarchy of a kitchen, the seriousness of a kitchen, but more importantly, the passion of it is, I think, what all of us who are trying to make a serious career of this are drawn to, is this idea that it is not just something that is a passable skill set. It is a profession. It is a calling. And the French have made that very clear that it is a part of their, of their culture. And I think the only other cultures that I would say along those lines that do that are Japanese and mm -hmm. Italian. Do you think it's important still in culinary school today to teach you know, some of the French techniques? Because here you're talking about like a discipline and a way of, you know, looking at a concept, you know, for restaurants, but, you know, thinking about like the techniques like flambing and sauteing and poaching, broiling, you know, all of this, the mother's, you know, sauces and, and so on. Do you think it, it is still important to um, teach, teach the students in, in culinary school? This fury? I, I'd say yes and no. I mean, I, I think it depends on you as a cook, if you're going to culinary school. Like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, what do you, uh, how do you want to cook? What do you want? To me, as, as a young cook, I want to know everything. I want to know everything that I possibly could. And the main challenge for me and the main challenge I see for young cooks is, do you have the, the passion, the care and the attention span to absorb, absorb knowledge? You want to be great. You need to surround yourself with greatness. Whether those specific techniques are going to be part of your, part of your future, part of your whole career. I, you, I sort of look at like part of the French culinary training, the specific, like all the mother sauces, it, it's sort of like uh, learning trigonometry. It's like, uh, is this really going to be applicable to the cuisine that you create? Well, if you're a mathematician, sure. If you're not, then maybe in some more esoteric ways, you know, those having knowledge helps you be more creative and, and have more tools to to feed your creativity. So while, whereas you may never make several of these sauces or may never really directly use some of these techniques in your cooking 15 years down the road, but having that knowledge for contextualizing an idea that you're building can make all the difference in uh, scaffolding the ideas towards something feasible, something, something that works. And just getting an idea for how ingredients work together, how the science of the food works. And so I think it, it's applicable, but yes and no. I, I would say the learning that in the French way, is that more prevalent or important than learning a system of equally refined Italian or Japanese technique? I'd say no. I think it's having the discipline and the refinement of that technique ingrained in you is what's important, exactly what school that comes from. Ideally, you get all of it, right? But I wouldn't put necessarily put one over the other. This is Andre, by the way. Looking at culinary school specifically, or and I think back to my time there and all the things that I made that I've probably never made since. And what's really interesting about culinary school or or the or French and is I, I focused more on the techniques and it wasn't necessarily so much on all the the different recipes and things like that. But I felt like that the techniques gave me a strong foundation. If you knew how to roast properly, it didn't matter if you were roasting a chicken or a duck or a piece of meat or a saute, you could interchange that recipe based on the technique. So I think what the French did really well is they, they brought those techniques. Um, and I would say, especially here in the West, it's probably, if you look at 90% of the restaurants that exist, you're probably using those techniques, you know, probably the same 10 techniques or so in, in every restaurant. However, when you get to the higher ends, of the spectrum and the higher end kitchens, then I think that you start introducing more of the Japanese and, and, you know, 
more complex techniques that are no longer French, right? That might be techniques that are coming out today, um, you know, through fermentation or, or whatever the case may be. I think the foundation for about 90% of what we do is probably based off, off that. Not necessarily the recipe, more so on the technique. But with that being said, I was thinking about this the other day as I was having a conversation with one of my cooks, how beautiful his Japanese knife was and how so many of my young cooks have these beautiful Japanese knives and how 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I was in the kitchen, no one had a Japanese knife. Everyone had a Henkel's or a Forstner or whatever German knife or Swiss knife it was. And you'd be looked at as an oddball if you had a Japanese knife. Like, who is, who is this guy in the kitchen with the Japanese knife? Now, it's the opposite. You come in with your, uh, with your hankles in the kitchen, in a, in a high-end kitchen. Everyone's going to like, would you step off a farm truck? Or where'd you, where'd you come from? But it's interesting to see how, how times have changed in terms of you know, you, you know, the fashion of it. But the one thing that hasn't changed is that you still need to know how to dice. You still need to know how to saute. You still need to know how to braise, regardless if you're braising something that's Asian-influenced or something that's French or Italian. Certain things don't change. So I would say let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater just yet when it comes to, to that. I, I still think there's a lot of value in it. However, I think the modern chef needs to understand you know, to be able to navigate through and say, hey, this might not be applicable, but, but this definitely is. And do you think that um, you know, some of those dishes that we have around the table, we can call maybe the classics you know, dish, do you see they have still a, a place today? You know, it's cyclical. So a few years ago, I don't remember the year, but when Thomas Keller came out with Bouchon, um, there wasn't many French bistros or brasseries in the U.S. Right after he came out with the book, there was a bistro or brasserie uh, in every city. And then everyone got tired of it. A few years later, now that no one's doing bistros and brasseries, you have uh, Chef's Table on Netflix coming out with their French edition. A couple of years later, there's a bistro and a brasserie popping up everywhere again. So as long as there's a country of France, there'll always be French food. I think it will, it will go through cycles. And right now, uh, you know, we might be on that ascending arc of uh, French cuisine again, but maybe slightly different from the way it was. Andre, I'm looking at the chicken breast here. That never goes out of style, right? Nothing makes me hungrier or more like satisfied when I look at a plate of like perfectly roasted chicken. You see like the stuffing under the breast and the crispy skin and the jus. Whereas it's a classic and you can the public can roll their eyes and back, oh, not another bistro or something. But to me, like as a cook, like the the discipline that goes into just making that thing right every time. If I'm leaving the house to go eat something, I want to know some someone put that amount of care into that food. And it makes me hungry. And it's also really, really delicious. So it's like the the classic element of that cuisine. Like I get excited about this food all the time. This is one of those great lunches where, you know, unassumingly Andre was like, hey, you want to come by? We're going to talk. You know, it'll be a podcast. You know, you always assume during podcasts, you get like a couple of things here. I always love this. This is such a great move. We come down, sits in, he drops like this whole spread on us. And I, I like, I hope you can see this from home, but like, this is really delicious. And, and quite honestly, you can tell when somebody puts care into all these things, like the, the food is really, really delicious and bravo to your team. Like it's awesome. And I always love eating here and I, and I don't do it enough, but like what a great example of a meal that feeds your soul, right? And I think to me, that's what we always seek out in food. Now, because French food, I think, is more known to people, meaning the brasseries have come and gone and come and gone again. We all have some form of relation with that. And our relation with French food may be positive, may be negative, may be in between, but the expectation is there. And because of that, it's less surprising. 
that can be a really positive thing because we know what to expect. We can seek out comfort. We can feel it. We have this weighing of what it used to be. But that can also be a negative thing. If I'm looking to have a new experience in my life, like skydiving or just in general, something that is uh, brand new and exciting and opens up something, very rarely is traditional French going to do that anymore. We no longer are having our first, second, or even third experience with it. And that, I think, for French food in general is why that they created Nouvelle or, or that movement was so enigmatic here. And, and I think the question that we were posed in the podcast to begin with, which is, you know, why are American chefs not so held to recipes and French chefs are, are much more? I would say the great French restaurants today have guidelines of recipes, but they've all rewritten them to make them their own. And I think ultimately that is what we are doing in America today is we're taking guidelines and trying to make them our own artwork that we have here, right? And I, and I believe very much or we're craftsmen more than artists, but that's just my belief. But in general, you don't want to replicate what somebody else has done well. You want to give onus to it. You want to be inspired by it, but you want to make sure that you are not ripping it off. So two things, um, you know, after I just said, Kevin, is do you think you said that the, the chef made the French chef uh, now kind of evolved and, and changed a little bit? Because so, I, I, I looked and, um, you know, towards like the French chef and I thought, you know, there's a lot of rigidity. You know, there's like we have to play by the, the rules, by the book, you know, follow the recipes. And it's been done this way for, you know, hundreds of years. And this is how French cooking is. Somehow I've seen this rigidity being completely different, you know, here in America. That's what I really love. I've been, you know, in the US for 17 years now. And I'm looking at you guys, the chef, that it seems that you have much more flexibility and freedom on that you are giving them, I would say, those techniques and the recipes like a, a new perspective. It's interesting. I think that if you look at modern day cuisines that have come the furthest from where they were, we'll just say Scandinavian right now, which is having a huge moment. And I think the reason why it's having such a huge moment is because they gave themselves permission to move because their cuisine for so long was not something that people were loyal to. It was something that was just okay. And so when this, you know, when we've learned in science and the world now is a totally different place through the internet and through travel, and we've been able to pick up Japanese knives, and Japanese techniques and Scandinavian techniques, and, you know, it really techniques from all around the world. They were able to indoctrinate that into their cuisine the fastest because they did not have a ton of Francophiles who were saying, this is the way it has been forever and is the best way because history has proven it this. And they were now able to say, well, hold on a second. We know much more than our ancestors do. We're more technical. We now have different selections of things from throughout the world. And we can remake what is our cuisine modern. And that allowed them to push them further. And I do think that there is still a tremendous amount of people in France that know that this is the best way. It has been great, and it is great, and I want it that way. The other question that I have is, do you think today creativity is more important than techniques or techniques more important than creativity? Ideas are a dime a dozen, right? We as humans, we have several million unique ideas in, happen in our brain over the course of a day. And how many do we put into action as a, into creating a positive action? Sometimes zero, sometimes less than five. The only thing that allows you to take an idea that sort of accessing your creativity into something actionable in the world 
is the discipline of action, right? And technique in the kitchen, we talk about that as that is your discipline. There is nothing in the kitchen, in, in food, there's nothing without the technique. Without the technique, you have no way, you have no outlet. You could be the most creative, you could be an absolute creative genius, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but without the technique, you have no way to display that out. I, I would venture to say that creativity is the easy part. Uh, by the way, I mean, I'm going to ask you the question, Andre, as well, but your puree, your, you know, I call it puree in French, sorry, but it is one, uh, you know, it reminds me the one that my mom uh, used to make when I was a kid, and it's outstanding and delicious, so thank you. If we're talking about creativity versus technique, I'm going to give you two answers. So I'll start out as an employer. If I'm hiring someone, I would almost rather hire someone with more technique and less creativity. Because sometimes I bring someone into the kitchen and the first, you know, they say, well, when can I get my dish on the menu or when can I start making my own food? And I'm like, well, we, I got the creativity part down. You don't have to worry about that. I, you, make sure you season it. Or how about make sure the food is fresh? Sometimes these are the bigger challenges. So I, I think when it comes to creativity, I would say, look, if, if you have the technique, then your creativity, you know, to your point earlier is, is limitless. You could, you could really go far. But not everyone has it. Not everyone has it. But if you don't have the creative part, you could always fall back on the technique and the fundamentals. You could always fall back, back on that and deliver consistently good food. The other thing I'll say, especially when it comes to creativity, is it's sometimes it's, it's short-lived. With Instagram, for example, I found myself looking at food all the time. And then I, as I started cooking, I was like, I think I saw this dish earlier. And as I'm preparing it, like it went back into my subconscious and then it came forward. And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm, now I'm now I'm copying a dish without even knowing that I was copying the dish. So was it, was it my creativity or was it just, you know, an influence based on book or social media or something like that? And when it comes to true creativity, when it, I mean, when we're talking true creativity, you could think of chefs like Rene Redzepi, the, you know, truly creative that everyone now cooks like him. I wouldn't say that they're being creative. I would say that, you know, they're executing maybe his vision. Or if you look at, uh, you know, Farhan Adria back in the day, that was true creativity. And I think from an employer standpoint, as I said, I would go for technique before I'd go for creativity. But then when you're in the restaurant setting, I would almost, you know, I, I look at these two gentlemen over here that are very, you know, successful chef entrepreneurs. And I wasn't. I was, uh, you know, when I had my restaurant, we closed, we closed the restaurants um, and we weren't successful. And I often thought back to that moment, I said, well, well, why? I was probably the best I could have been as a creative chef. But I recognized that maybe we weren't delivering the food consistently. Maybe the service wasn't consistent. Maybe you know the little things that matter were more important than the creativity I put on the plate because I thought I was at a very creative state at that point in my career. So I recognized the fact that delivering consistently good food and delivering consistently good service and having a consistent experience might be more important in the restaurant world than the creativity. If I could jump in to echo what you're saying, Andres, the creativity in, in that context can often be a trap. Is where, especially as, as a young chef, as, as a young cook, I don't know about you guys, but in my mind, I was like, well, it's all about my ideas, right? And I have to express my ideas. And when we have young cooks come to our restaurants, that I would imagine you may be able to attest to, to this as well, as you were saying, they, they want to talk about their ideas. And in reflection, I think about, oh gosh, no, so like, I can't believe I would say that to a chef, like, that I, you know, this idea that I had, because there's an element of being socialized and, you know, read the room. Are you in actually in a position in the kitchen that you are succeeding to a a point 
you have cleared your plate of your responsibilities. You are able to help out the way that the kitchen needs help. And if so, at that point, it might be a great idea to say, you know, I have this idea that I think might help you. When you have a cook that sees the room that way and is able to be graceful and contextualize all that's happening around him and then say that, then you have something. That's when I say this guy's talented because seeing, contextualizing the environment of a restaurant requires a special talent. And it's where I, I see Kevin is one of the most talented humans I know in this way. The way his, he has like a third order vision for operation, the things that he sees happening inside the restaurant at once. It's really that, that there is a talent for your breadth of vision and trying to organize all the information at once. That to me is its own sort of creativity. It's more informed with organization and order and the, the way that different relationships correlate to each other than as opposed to what if I put these two ingredients together, which can be really fascinating sometimes, but only in the context of all these other things. We're talking about Kevin and what a, what a great chef he is. I'm, I'm going to point something out that was a great experience when I was eating at his restaurant, Demer and Ryan. I was eating there with some friends. And it's about the complete package because it's not sometimes just about the food. It's also about the service. And while we were at our table having our meal, he did something that I've never seen a chef do in a dining room that blew me away and impressed me. And it was so simple. And I thought, I need to start doing that in the dining room. Is as he was talking to the table, he noticed that we were low on water and didn't say anything. As he's, he's just in casual conversation, pouring water and refilling everyone's drinks. And I thought to myself, wow, that much in tune with service, that much in tune with the dining room that he noticed that the water glasses were low, that he's, he's filling the water and he's, he's doing little things to the table and adjusting things while we're dining. And I was watching the whole time. I was like, wow, that's, that's just next level. That's next level service because it's, it's so typical that the chef's going to come to the table and just talk to you and then, and then leave and wipe his hands on his apron and look like a slob, but not Kevin. You know, professional polished, spoke intelligently, articulately about whatever it was that we were having all while rearranging the table. And I, I, was, I was blown away. All this comes down to this notion that if you're very specialized in something, then you lose the focus on everything. And as a chef, and very much as a restaurant owner or as uh, an executive chef over like multiple venues, you have to generalize in what you do. And you can never truly be an expert in all those things, but you can be more than proficient in most of those things. And it's a very weird, vulnerable space because in theory, you're managing people better at you at every single thing that you're managing them on. And they have that awareness too. You know, while I know how to bake bread, uh, the person that bakes our bread every day is better at it today than I am, and they should be. That doesn't mean that I don't need to hold them accountable. And so then it becomes this interesting dynamic of that. All of my servers know that they're better at reading a guest, not serving, right? I want to make sure that we're really clear on this. Serving a guest is not putting plates out, taking silverware, pouring wine. That's not service. Service is about hospitality. It's about noticing that somebody's left-handed. It's about noticing when to give somebody space. It's about when to recognize a guest is uncomfortable with something and how you can make them more comfortable. At times, it's about breaking the ice. And all of those things, we dine out for many different reasons. And how to engage somebody in many of those different reasons is why being a generalist 
and recognizing all these things is really important. So my career was almost equal tarts in the front of house and back house. Now it has leaned more back of house. And the reason it leans more back house is I, quite honestly, I'm just more passionate about it. I am more fed from it. Every day I wake up more excited for it. And it is a reason where in our growth of our, of our restaurant group, I will never deviate too far from cooking every day and being there. So, you know, we're opening a restaurant in a month and a half, maybe two months. And leading up to that, I have 60 hours of office work a week that I do. And I still make time to cook on the line 20 hours a week, just to be there, to touch it, to feel the food, to interact in it, to have that pace, to feed my soul in those things. So you're talking about almost six cents about hospitality. Do you feel that the new generation today are a little bit lacking of this? Every time I have the podcast and then I am interviewing chefs, they are all saying that the level of, um, you know, of like the new generation of cooks or people that are in front of the house are really different from what it used to be. And it's very difficult to find quality and people being motivated. I think that it's about stewardship and mentorship. And I think that they are stewarded and mentored from television early on. And in that, their, their focus on that has shifted. And so their expectations of the world are a bit different in that. I found that the people that we work with, I love, I think they're amazing. And even the young ones that come in with this really different vision are quickly adjusted to the reality that is our kitchen and our service of that. And there are aspects of that that affect that. And quite honestly, in some ways, we're dinosaurs to that. You know, shame on us for saying, oh, they're... They're the problem. No, 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 no. The world is changing and we need to look at it in a different way. And if we expect it to be the same way that it was, we will be left behind. So how do you keep those people motivated and how do you mentor them? Well, I mean, I, I'm quite fortunate in our restaurant. It is a restaurant based in obscurity. You know, it, it teaches people about fermentation, whole animal butchery, milling, bread baking, amazake production, uh, the mired reaction of blackening of vegetable product and byproduct, you know, about rancidity, oxidation, and overall customer experience. And, and in those things, if you can grasp that in a year, let alone two, you know, most cooks that come into our kitchen are overwhelmed immediately. And in that overwhelming sensation, you reach in and you want to grab onto something that allows you to hold on and feel like you still have a grasp. And that's where we can break them down. And it's not even that we're actively trying to break them down. We're trying to show them that, yes, you know a lot, but there is so much more out there to know. And we don't need to tell you that there's so much more out there to know. Instead, I'm going to drop you into the deep end of the pool and I'm going to, and I'm going to be this life support for you and say, come with me. I've learned this the hard way. You don't need it to learn it the hard way. But do you think because of this very unique profile of restaurant that you have, that the people that are knocking on your door and the people that are already motivated and they said, I want to stage, you know, in that restaurant because I'm going to learn something unique. And that makes you maybe like in a different position to, you know, other restaurants around the country. Absolutely. And I'm aware that I'm in a glass, uh, you know, container of that versus some of our other more casual places. It is a totally different thing. And honestly, we hire differently for that. And we look for different people. And it's funny, we're hiring for the first time in like a year and a half, which is kind of a weird thing to say, not to say that we haven't hired people. We've never had to put out an ad. We've always had somebody, you know, coming in. But because we're opening a new restaurant, we're moving five people over. So we need to hire five people. We had three people in waiting. We need to hire two. We had somebody who came in and applied for another restaurant. And they said, well, I told my chef that I was coming here. And they said, well, just be aware 
that nobody talks at all during prep. Well, first of all, that's not true. The simple fact is that there is this reputation that our restaurant has. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is uh, you know, up to you. But to me, when people are talking about what you do and they're enamored with it in a way, that attention is something that I want people to be. And cooks that honestly are intimidated by it should go elsewhere because they're not ready for it. And the people that want to grasp life and be part of something that is unique and special should come because those are the people that are going to change what we do either way. Every generation says that the generation that comes after them is unfocused, undisciplined, not ready. They have it easy. This has been the trope in the United States for now six generations, at least. So to an element, there there's truth to it. And there to an element, this is just this sort of an old man trope that you have to, as a mentor, like I have to, when I see someone take the easy way out of a decision, say a cook or a server in the restaurant, take the easy way out, take a shortcut, and really to say, do it incorrectly. I don't roll my eyes and say, you know, this is a generational problem. I say, oh, this is a person that I've hired that I have a relationship with. We spent 10 hours talking before I hired them. I know that this is someone I want to be in this restaurant. I know that this is someone that wants to be great. And it is part of my relationship to hold that person accountable, hold the mirror up to them, let them know what they're doing at this moment, and and show them a better way. I think it's making that choice as a mentor, making that choice all the time, recognizing those opportunities and capitalizing on them. and. The higher percentage of times that you actually make that decision to engage and 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 mentor the people that you've there that that are there to work with you that are there to be mentored, when you take advantage of that opportunity all the time, you will have you'll be delighted by the outcome. So, what's the advice you know for people that you can have you know that wants to be in this industry? General general advice for them. If you want to work in a kitchen within this industry, like figure out what it is you want to work in in the industry. There's so many different ways to do it. You can sell wine, make wine, serve wine. You can raise beef at a ranch. You can cook meat roast at a restaurant. You can you can farm vegetables. There's so many ways to be a part of the industry. It is recognizing what makes your heart full, what makes you feel at the end of the day you feel overjoyed by what you are able to produce that day. Because if if you finish a day of that work and you don't feel overjoyed, even if you're tired and stressed, if you don't feel that sense of joy and gratitude for the work, then you're doing the wrong thing. I love you. That's a bit romanticized. And the thing is, you also have to have the fortitude to recognize that nothing is just only things that you love to do. In our life, And I would never choose another life. There are hard days. There are moments of days that are very trying. That doesn't mean that I don't recognize now as an adult who's been there that this is the best path for me. But when I'm a young cook, there are going to be days where I get, where I mess up, where I question it. And if I look at it and I say, if I don't love it every single day of it, now I totally agree with what you're saying is, if this isn't your calling, move on because there are too many other people that it is their calling that will be better, that care more, that every day will wake up more. But recognize that life is hard. 
you will be challenged. You will wake up some days questioning if you're doing the right thing. But refine that. As a retort, to, to refine what I was saying, it's more that make sure that this is something that you are in love with when you're getting into it. That is the entree to, to putting the work in. Because if, if you don't feel full and gratified by the work, by the nature of the work, then the challenges ahead, that'll beat you out of the business in five minutes. You, you, you won't belong. The fort, having Some people are, have thicker skin than others, right? To be in this industry, you have to have an extremely thick skin. To succeed, to be able to think clearly and think above the fray, you have to have an extremely thick skin. Most of us, I, I wasn't born with a thick skin. I was pretty thin. I had to learn how to toughen up in order to think clearly and, and do a really good job amidst all of it. But what I knew was that I loved this thing. I loved the craft. I probably went a good year plus at a specific job without experiencing any joy. Zero joy, right? But what I knew was that this thing, this universe that I lived in, was a universe that I loved. I was mad at myself. I was frustrated at myself that I didn't know how to conquer it yet. But because I knew that I loved it, because I knew that there, the joy was there, was on the other side of the rainbow for me, I was willing to put the work in. If, if I could take the conversation, let's assume someone is in the industry, they want to be in it, and they're, and they're passionate about what they do, but they just don't know how to get from line cook to world's best chef. And the advice I would give someone that's in the business, I would say, look, if your goal is to be the best cruise ship chef in the world, working at a three Michelin star restaurant's not going to get you there. And if your goal is to be a three Michelin star chef, working in a hospital is not going to get you there. And I think people need to identify that right away because I've, I've come across so many people in my career that you know, are phenomenally passionate just in the wrong place in the kitchen. They're extremely switched on. They read all the books. They watch all the right shows. They cook all the right food but they do it in the wrong restaurant or in the wrong kitchen. And so my advice to someone is find the kitchen that you want to be. What's your top line goal? If you want to, if you want to be the next Kevin Fink, then you got to work under Kevin Fink to know what that's like. You're not going to learn how to be that by working in a taco shop, for example. But if you want to be the best taco shop, you're not going to probably learn that working in my restaurant or any of our restaurants, right? You might want to Maybe unless you're making tacos for staff meal, but but the fact of the matter is, if you want to have a great food truck, go go work in a food truck and understand what that is. But I see too many too many young culinarians that are just starting out that have ambitions, but they're afraid to stick their toe in the water and say, "Oh boy, if one day I could be the next Rene Redzepi, but won't make the leap to go abroad to to study under a chef like a Rene Redzepi and say, you know, if that's what you want to learn, then then go over there." And immerse yourself in that. And kitchens are tough, you know. To the to the point earlier is that there's it's long days, it's hard work, it's physically demanding. It's almost a uh, it's almost an athletic sport. You know, there's a lot of bending and lifting. And you know, I was I was much better at this when I was younger because I could I could move on the line. Now I'm a little bit more mechanical. And sometimes, depending on the kitchen that you're in, the hierarchy, the way it's run, is a little bit analogous. Maybe it's militant. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's it's sports like. So. You know, I, I think I know we could relate. We both played sports younger, and there is, there is a little bit of you know when it's when it's yes chef or we chef. It's like yes coach. You know, it's it's a similar mentality. So just like when you're in high school or or on a sports team, you notice that you went further in certain sports if you were more disciplined and focused than the other kids on the team. The same thing applies in the kitchen. If you are more disciplined, if you come in a little bit earlier, if you work just a little bit harder, if you say yes more often. 
and listen more, you'll, you'll grasp more. I, I think in a nutshell, I would say expect to work hard and put yourself in the environment in the direction that you're trying to go. Wow, what a great episode. I don't know if you're like me, but I am really impatient to hear the second part of it. This is coming, in fact, on Tuesday, October 19th. I really want to know, you know, what you think about this episode or in about the show in general. So please go into the comment section of uh, this episode on the bottom of uh, the show notes on flavorsunknown.com website. Tell me, you know, if you like uh, this uh, form of uh, discussion, casual discussion around the table with multiple chefs, if this is something that you like uh, to hear more of. If you enjoy the show, you know, please make sure to subscribe to Flavors Unknown on Apple Podcasts or any other phone podcast app. Don't forget to um, follow Flavors Unknown on social media on either Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. So uh, you can find it, of course, with the uh, handle at Flavors Unknown. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.